So tonight we are looking at the final two verses of the letter of Jude, verses 24 and 25. And as I mentioned in my prayer, these are the, the, the verses that make up the doxology. Uh, I've used this doxology uh, often. Uh, um, no doubt uh, this is the favorite doxology of the Davis family who lives in Georgia for obvious reasons. Their son's name is Jude. So... <laughs> so um, but, uh, but it's a beautiful doxology. It's, it is, it's one you cannot help but, uh, but to smile when you hear, to reflect with wonder when you hear how uh, it, is, it is described. And to walk, you can't walk away from, that doc, from this doxology discouraged when you hear it uh, and, and it is blessed over you by the pastor. Um, but we are going to read it now and we will consider the meaning of it. Tonight, So I'll bring up the text here, and, and we'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. So as I said, next week we'll be, uh, we will be wrapping up the book of Jude, uh, but, uh, but tonight we are looking at likely the most familiar part of the letter of Jude, which is the final two verses. Uh, this is a, a rich uh, passage, that, and there's so much packed into it, uh, that, but it, we can miss out on the nuances of the significance of what Jude says here if we aren't familiar with what came before it, with the context of the letter itself. So we need to remember that Jude is all about dealing, the letter of Jude is all about dealing with problems not outside of the church, but inside the church, particularly the problem of false teaching. Jude tells the church to watch out for and to positively guard themselves against, the, uh, against corrupting the gospel. He says to watch out for these negative things, but then he says also do these positive things in order to protect yourselves. Uh, and, and so Jude tells them to, to prepare themselves for this. But, but at this point, we may well ask, how in the world... Do a bunch of weak and weary Christians do this? But, and we ask this question not only for, for their sake, but for ours today. How can we deal with the onslaught of hatred against the church while at the same time deal with the problems that arise inside the church of false teachers and discord and division, the things that come up it, just simply by it, within the church itself? Do we just do our best and hope it works out? Well, it, the, Jude's letter, it, it requires this doxology. Jude closes this uh, with this doxology on purpose because the doxology here forms the answer of where the church locates its assurance in the face of these internal challenges. Our assurance as the church is not found in our doctrinal purity. And that's something that actually has come up today. Every, every group, you see it in politics, uh, uh, you see it, and, and it doesn't matter what side of the aisle it is, uh, they're, they're what you call purity tests. 
They just say, are, are, are you pure enough? Are you Republican enough? Are you Democrat enough? Well, you're, whatever those things mean, you're not enough, which by enough you mean further and further out, right? And so if you're not pure enough, so there's purity tests. And you can do that in the church too. Are you reformed enough, right? Are you Presbyterian enough, right? So, and so they're, they're, but we are not, our assurance is not found in our doctrinal purity. It's not found in our, uh, the, uh, our moral righteousness. It is not found in a sacrificial faith. Our assurance is not based upon that. Our assurance is found, as Jude says here, in the God who is able. Our assurance is found in the God who is unique. And our assurance is found in the God who deserves everything. We'll consider each of these points tonight. And in so doing, we will locate the strength of our assurance and the power to persevere as the church. So first, we find our assurance in the God who is able. In verse 24, Jude says that God is able to keep us from stumbling. Now, uh, the focus uh, in the Greek here is on that verb keep. Our, our God is the God who keeps, uh, uh, which also means to guard God is the God who guards his people, who keeps his people. As Jesus said, he is the good shepherd. He knows his sheep. He will not lose one. He is the one who comes by the gate, who protects from the thieves and the wolves. Well, how does he keep us? Well, Jude says he keeps us free from stumbling. It's here that, that what they did was they, in the Greek, they took the verb to stumble and they threw an A on the front of it to make it the opposite of it. And so, and so it's saying, to, to, so to keep, he keeps us not stumbling is effectively what it says. He keeps us from stumbling, free of stumbling. But the thing is, is don't we talk about in the Christian life about stumbling all the time? I mean, I'm afraid to go in my playroom of my house with the lights turned off because I am going to stumble over something, right? It is, you take your life in your own hands in my house when you go through that playroom. But do we not stumble morally? Is Jude merely saying that if one does not keep the whole law, that we are stumbling into darkness and destruction? Or is Jude saying that God is able, but might not keep us from stumbling? Now, Jude is using the word stumble here in the way that is used in the Psalms and the Proverbs and the wisdom literature, as cited by the apostles, such as Peter, who, refused to, who refers to Jesus as the cornerstone and the stumbling block and the rock of offense to those who do not believe, to those who reject him. The stumbling here is effectively falling away, renouncing Christ, renouncing the faith. We know that the elect of God do not keep themselves by their own strength. We are kept by God such that while we may have our moments, we may have our struggles, we may have our failures, 
We do not stumble in this way. We do not fall totally away, as the confession says. We do not fall completely into unbelief and denial of our Savior. We may fall into sin for a time, but we are called back by the Lord. And so God is the one who is able to keep us from stumbling. Also, God is able to present us to himself in glory. God is able to present us, Jude says, blameless before him, before his glory, with great joy. Now, I know me. And if someone tells that to me, I'm going to say, that's a tall order. You're going to present me blameless? You know, it's like when they go, um, in the 1990s, there was a movie called King Ralph. I don't know if you all, with John Goodman. They went and found this kind of good old boy who apparently was, was descended to the, he was actually the, supposed to be the king. And so, they brought, and so they brought this good old boy, you know, into, and, it, and, and it's all just kind of fish out of water comedy where he just makes a fool of himself. Well, that's how I would feel, <laughs> right? Uh, trying, to, uh, trying, to, uh, trying to come into, you know, you're going to present me blameless? Me? I know who I am. I know what I do. But he says he is able to present us blameless. Now, we're going to consider specifically how he does this through Jesus later, because uh, Jude's going to tell us. But Jude assures us of the fact that God is able to do it. That despite our troubles inside the church, despite our troubles outside of the church, despite the troubles inside our very hearts, he says that we will stand before the Lord in glory, blameless. That is, without fault in the sight of God, in the in the uh, in the in the all-seeing eye of God, we shall be reckoned as blameless in his sight. Do not overlook the fact that in his glory, we will not be destroyed. In his glory, we will not be consumed by his wrath. Some will. Unbelievers will. Sinners will. But God's people will not. The word glory means to be heavy. Specifically what the, the, the word in the Hebrew means. And certainly, and this is what I've, I've referred to it before, it's like when we say someone's going to throw their weight around, that's kind of an idea of glory, they, they, to have weight. And certainly, the sheer glory of God would crush us. But because of the mercy of God, we will stand in his presence with great joy. Not, not dread, but great joy. Indeed, it will be joy for us as we wonder at the goodness and love that brought us here to this moment, that we get to enjoy this. I mean, have you ever had a moment in your life where you're like, I can't believe I get to enjoy this. This is too good. Just wait till you stand in the presence of God in his glory. But do you know that that great joy is not just your joy? It's his. That God will rejoice to have you in his presence. Not, he doesn't rejoice as if he were needy, as if he just couldn't be whole without you or me. But he delights in you now, the scriptures tell us. How much more will he delight in you when your remaining corruption is removed from you 
And you stand before him, blameless and in glory and perfection. God, if you're like me, you you tend to think that God will tolerate your presence in glory. But he will not tolerate your presence in glory. You will feel his pleasure as you stand before him. But we need to, before we leave from this, we need to consider what we mean when we say that God is able. By his very nature, God is a being of pure act. God can do all that he wills, and all that he wills is perfect, just, and good. As I've said, unlike Eric in the 10th grade, God has no potential that he's not fulfilling, according to my 10th grade English lit teacher. So she was very nice and accurate. So, but I highlight this because, as I alluded to earlier, we might be tempted to think that, that when, when Jude is saying that God is able, that he's implying the idea that God could potentially or possibly keep you from stumbling or possibly present you to himself in, protect, in perfection, but he might not. Now, there is a kernel of truth in that thinking in the sense that if we're praying for, to God for a particular outcome in our lives, if we're praying to God for healing or for help in a difficult situation in our lives, well, he might deliver us in that situation. He might uh, give us the relief that we're seeking, or he might not, but he is the God who is able to. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know, said as much when they stood before the fiery furnace, didn't they? They said, well, he can deliver us. We knew if he doesn't, we ain't bowing the knee. So he may as well chuck us in there, right? But they didn't know that there was going to be a fourth person walking around in the furnace with them, delivering them. But we know, Jude says, we know our Savior. We know our God. It's not simply that he has the potential ability, but he has actually promised. And not only has he promised, he has delivered, as Judah is going to remind us, in his son Jesus Christ. And so as we proceed here, as we, it, it, we need to understand that Jude is not saying it's possible that God, the God who is able is, going to, is doing, it may, might do these things. But that we need to remember in the face of seemingly insurmountable problems and challenges that the church has always faced. When you study church history, that's the thing about studying church history, is you always see the church is always, even going back to the Old Testament and the people of God in the Old Testament, the, 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 the people of God are almost always hanging by a thread. It's almost that thin. It's a hundred-year-old man who doesn't have any kids, and all he has is the promise of God. And he keeps screwing up, right? Like that's, that, that, it's as thin as that. It's, it's Jacob running from Esau because these things are going to get murdered. And we're like, Esau might murder you. He is not a good dude, right? Like it's it, it thin. And then it's, it's, it's Israel in exile and being dominated by pagan nations. It's so thin. It's the Christian church under persecution in the early centuries. It's thin. The disciples hiding out in the upper room after Jesus had died. The Holy Spirit comes and, 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 and fills them with power. So 
we need to remember that our God is able. But what that means is that our God is able and that he will do all that he wills and all that he has promised according to his covenant. He will keep us. He will keep his church. He will present his church to himself in glory with great joy. And that is because of who he is. And so we, we need to be reminded that God is able, not because it's because salvation is possible, but because, because of the difficulty of this life, we may begin to doubt God's ability. And we need to be reminded that God is able. Secondly, God is the unique God in verse 25. We are reminded, as the Bibles want to do, that God is the only God. Uh, Jude points out something that we might uh, think is rather exceedingly obvious, but he's highlighting the exclusivity of God, that there is only one God, there's only one like him. He's his own category of, of, of being. There's no one like him. He is utterly and totally and completely unique. He is unique in his being, he is unique in his ability, as the only God who is all able to accomplish all of his will. And it's important for the church to remember that our God is the only one. Jude's hearers, are, we, have to, we have to be reminded, are living in a pagan society, uh, but they have also encountered false teaching that uh, perhaps was claiming some kind of order of spiritual beings, maybe, intro, maybe getting into some synth, uh, um, synthesis of, uh, or, of, of basically um, uh, uh, of blending different religions together. Um, and, uh, but, uh, but this is still true in, um, in pagan cultures today. If, you are living, if you're a Christian living in India... There, there, there's Hinduism all over the place, all right? There's gods and statues and, and, and temples all over the place, okay? Uh, now, for us in, in, in America where, and, and, for, and more, of a Christian, more of a Christian nation with a Christian heritage, uh, it, it's not so much lots of pagan temples everywhere, although we see more and more of those uh, as the years go on. Uh, it's more of substituting things for God. It's more substituting the, the created things for the uncreated one. It's, it's substituting modern comforts and entertainment and sports and food and material possessions and physical pleasure for God. Many people just give God the nod as, they, as the only God, but they end up bowing the knee to other things in their lives. This matters because... When we have trouble, it is often these things that we turn to first to cope with our struggles, and we find them wanting. And so we'll bring in more things and more things until we finally realize that all of these are, as Jeremiah would say, empty cisterns that can hold no water because they were not designed for this. Our immortal souls were designed for the eternal one. To find our hope in him, the only God, who is also, Jude tells us, our Savior through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is the only God, and he is also the only God who saves. But we must remember, he is the God who saves. 
God has many titles, that, and, and we cannot fathom the things which can be uh, said of him concerning who he is and what he has done in the universe. But Jude reminds the weary church and the worn-out Christian that God is not merely the only Savior. He is our Savior. We rightly attach the title of Savior to God's Son, but here... Notably, Jude attaches the title Savior to the Father. It is right to regard God the Father as Savior because He planned our salvation. He willed it. It takes nothing away from the Son because Jesus actually accomplished that salvation. And His will was to do whose will? The Father's. But let us not only think that Jesus yearns to save his church, that Jesus is the only person of the Trinity whose compassion burns for his people, for the sheep of his pasture. The Father wills to save. The Father plans our salvation. He schemes our redemption. He accomplishes it through his Son. Here is the answer to how God is able to keep us from stumbling to how God is able to present us to himself in glory with great joy, blameless in his sight. He does it through Jesus Christ. How else will we keep from stumbling off into destruction? How will we stand blameless before the Lord? The Anglican evangelist George Whitfield is never uh, short of good quips, and he laughed at the idea that one could enter heaven to, by his own strength. He said, you might as well try to climb to the moon on a rope made of sand. Instead, God the Father saves his church, providing cleansing and a righteousness from his Son, who became a curse for us that we might receive the righteousness of God. God keeps us because we have a Savior named Jesus. God will present you and I before himself in glory because he saves us through Jesus. But what is often overlooked here is the title given to Jesus by Jude. Not directly by Jude, but he notes it here, which is our Lord Jesus. God the Father is our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Lordship of Christ is the hope of our salvation. He is Lord over our lives, our souls, our bodies. You know, it's just it, it's this thing where it's like, okay, well, how much of me belongs to God? And the Heidelberg Catechism has its famous answer. Question number one regarding our only comfort in life and death. That I am not my own. I love how it starts there. What's my comfort in life, my, in, life, in life and death? I don't belong to me. Which is interesting because the, one of the dominant cultural themes today is I belong to me and no one else. I define my reality, I define my truth, because I own me. But the Christian gospel says, you don't own you, because you were bought with a price. In fact, even before that, you didn't own you, Satan owned you. But you have been bought 
you have been redeemed. I am not my own, but belong, I mean, oh man, uh, but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Why do we belong to him, body and soul in life and death? Because he has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. But we ask, can he keep you with all our failings and obstacles in this life? He, the catechism says, also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. But we ask, how can you be sure? The catechism answers, because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. A couple of things is one of the beauties of catechisms and creeds is that they come from a long time before us. This is written hundreds of years before us. You know, we were just talking in the, in the youth Sunday school this morning about how, you know, it wasn't fun to go to the doctor a hundred years ago, all right? You know, they pull out the leeches, you know, <laughs> they pull, you know, and we need to do some bloodletting, you know, we need to, you know, like some of the, some of the methods they had we might call questionable, uh, or another word is barbaric, okay? Of course, the question is a hundred years from now, what are we doing that's barbaric? But, <laughs> but we can name a few things already, um, but, but, but uh, we were reminded that before that, even that, even that, even in those times and prior to those times where life was unbearably difficult and hard compared to what we experience today, and even today we have great hardships and afflictions, what do they say? In the 1500s, my only comfort in life and death is that I do not belong to myself. I belong body and soul to Jesus Christ. He has bought me, purchased me. I mean, these are people dealing with, you know, they, you know, they're going to deal with a black plague. I belong to Jesus Christ. We need to remind ourselves. We today need to look in the mirror and say, tomorrow morning, when you get up in the morning, after you brush your teeth, as we all do, um, we need to remind ourselves to, as we look in the mirrors and say, I am not my own. I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Let that be the starting point for our day. Let that be the starting point for how we interact with others. Let that be the starting point for how we set our priorities, our expectations, and our hopes. The comfort of the church in the world is not in our buildings, it's not in our budgets, it's not in our activities. It is not in the style of our worship or how many people we can pack in the seats each Sunday. It is, in fact, not too much to say that the Christian hope is summed up in these two points. God is able and God saves through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
our assurance finally comes as kind of it's 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 encapsulated it's uh, in 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 an unexpected place but not wholly unexpected in the praise of god because in verse 25 in the second half of it we see that god deserves everything but we have to be clear when we say god deserves everything understand what jude is is talking about here because god deserves everything he already possesses Jude rattles off a a wonderful list. Glory, majesty, dominion, authority for all time, now, and forever. It sounds wonderful to a lot of people, to us, because we don't have much of those things. Whatever we have of them is fairly fleeting. But rather than go into detail of each of those items, I simply want to clarify what Jude means when he says there, to the only God, be these things. Because God is all-glorious, we know this. Uh, His majesty, his splendor or dignity, the Psalms say, uh, are his clothing. He's robed in majesty. His his majesty, the the Psalms say, is above heaven and earth, uh, beyond creation itself. His dominion knows no end. All of the earth and all the cosmos itself, including you and I and body and soul, belong to him. His being permeates all creation and beyond. His authority is absolute, unchanging, and unquestionable. And so let me ask you the age-old question. What do you get the person who has everything? When Jude says to God, be these things, he is not telling us to give something to God that he doesn't already possess. He is not praying that God would get more glory, that he would get more majestic, that he would get more dominion. Because he has all these things absolutely and perfectly now and always. Jude is saying that these things are to be ascribed to our God in our praise forever. Such is our God that he is deserving of unending praise from his beloved redeemed ones. And we we need to highlight here that God's praise is our security and salvation because God has willed to express all those things you'd mentioned his glory majesty dominion and authority not only through creation but what is it that what Jude is referring to when he goes into that list it's redemption in Jesus Christ that means that the reason we ascribe these things unto the Lord is not only because of his divine nature is not only because of his work of providence and creation but because of his work of providence in redemption on our behalf in Jesus. Our praise of God highlights the certainty of our salvation in Jesus Christ. That's why we meet. We don't meet to worship God simply because he made the world. He deserves worship for that, but that's not why we meet on Sunday. We meet on Sunday to worship him for that, sure, sure. but primarily because he has redeemed his creation and us in his son, Jesus Christ. That's why we're there on Sunday. That's why we meet on Sunday, isn't it? Because he was raised on the first day of the week. Important update. For just as certain 
as God's worthiness for his work in creation, even more certain is how the work of redemption, sorry, I'm, I'm fumbled that sentence. Um, just as certain as God's worthiness for his work in creation is, is as certain as his work of redemption in Jesus Christ, our Lord. The ascribing of these qualities unto God, according to Jude, here is not because of God's creative work or his sustaining power, although those are true and he is worthy of praise for them, but particularly because he is the God who saves his church. And so we find ourselves looking about, worried about the future, the future of the faith in the church, doubting our ability to weather the storms of this sinful world, the, the corrupting influence of false teachers and all the attending sorrows and uh, struggles and afflictions of this life. Then we, don't, we definitely don't need to look to ourselves as the source of assurance. We don't need to look to the strength of our faith as the source of assurance, but to lift our heads and our hands in praise to the God of our salvation, for in Jesus we find our assurance. There's a a beautiful letter written by a guy named John Todd in the 1800s. uh, um, that he wrote, but he actually he he received a letter from his beloved aunt, uh, who had raised him from the age of six after his parents died. Uh, she was very kind, loved him, raised him in the faith, uh, it, but was distressed at a certain point many years later because she'd become really ill, uh, seemed like she, she might die, and she was worried that death would be her undoing. And I want to read to you what he wrote to his aunt. He says this. He says, it is now 35 years, so he's 41. He said, it is now 35 years since I, as a boy of six, was left quite alone in the world. You sent me word that you would give me a home and be a kind mother to me. I have never forgotten the day I made the long journey to your house. I can still recall my disappointment when, instead of coming for me yourself, you sent your servant Caesar to fetch me. I remember my tears and anxiety As perched high on on your horse and clinging tight to Caesar, I rode off to my new home. Night fell before we finished the journey, and I became lonely and afraid. Do you think she'll go to bed before we get there? I asked Caesar. Oh, no, he said reassuringly. She'll stay up for you. When we get out of these woods here, you'll see her candle shining in the window. Presently, we did ride out into the clearing, and there, sure enough, was your candle. I remember you were waiting at the door, that you put your arms close around me, a scared and bewildered little boy. You had a fire burning on the hearth, a hot supper waiting on the stove. After supper, you took me to my new room, heard me say my prayers, and sat beside me till I fell asleep. Someday soon, God will send for you. And take you to a new home. Don't fear the summons, the strange journey, or the messenger of death. God can be trusted to do as much for you as you were kind enough to do for me so many years ago. At the end of the road, you will find love and a welcome awaiting, and you will be safe in God's care. We are indeed in the midst of of the fight of the faith. There are great obstacles and challenges 
that the church faces out in the world and inside the church itself. Jude encourages us not to become cynical, fearful, or despondent. Rather, he turns our eyes to God who is able to keep us and to present us to himself because he is the only God and he is our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord. So tonight, let us strengthen our souls by lifting up the praise he is due. Praise for his work of creation, but even more, praise for our salvation and eternal inheritance in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you center our assurance not upon um, ourselves, our strength, our individual uh, quality of faith. You don't, it's not even upon the, it's this as a, as a church, but that our assurance is based upon our Savior alone who resides in heaven, sitting upon the throne with uh, bearing the, the scars of our redemption. Father, we pray that we would take to heart that you are the God who is able, that you are the God who wills, and you will keep us from stumbling. You will present us before yourself in glory with great joy. And may we rejoice as the very thought that one day we will come and stand before you and lift our hands in praise. Lord, may you be glorified. May we be encouraged and strengthened to persevere through the afflictions and hardships and sorrows and struggles of this life. May we take courage and strength from one another as we do so in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's.